work of his hands. Day after day, they pour forth speech. Night after night, they reveal knowledge. They have no speech. They use no words. No sound is heard from them. Yet their voice goes out into all the earth, their words to the ends of the world. Thank you, Doug. It's Christmas season, Advent season, as we prepare to celebrate uh, one of the great central aspects of Christianity, Christmas, the birth of Jesus Christ, a child in a manger, but no ordinary child, the Son of God, part of the eternal trinity, and I'm going to be talking about the trinity this morning. It means, among other things, that God has become one of us, incarnate as a human being, taking on flesh, the eternal God becoming finite and vulnerable, entering our world, entering our personal history, drawing close to us, making himself available to us, vulnerable to us. But who is this God? What do we know about him? How do we know about him? Before we talk about the specifics of Christmas, we should talk about how Christianity knows or claims to know what it does. And that's what the sermon is about. How we know what we know about God. When I was a kid, long before I was a Christian, when I was a very little boy, I used to lay out under the stars. Um, back then, you could see more of them. Where I lived, uh, in a wooded area, the stars were much, much brighter than they seem today. And you could look up at the ex magnificence of them, and I did, many nights. And I wasn't a Christian. I'd never heard about Christianity or God, or except in some general terms. And yet, I instinctively responded to the beauty, the magnificence of what I was seeing. It wasn't that I had words. If you'd asked me what I was thinking, I wouldn't have been able to put it into words. There was no guidance or thought or discussion. It was exactly what Psalm 19 says. And when I discovered Psalm 19, I recognized these words. The heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of his hands. Day after day, they pour forth speech. Night after night, they display knowledge. As a child, before I was a Christian, before I knew anything, I was listening to my creator. I didn't call him that and didn't even think in those terms. I was listening to my creator, and he would comfort me. When I was troubled, I'd go on my parents' roof or the mossy uh, willow tree down the bottom of the garden, or sometimes out into the woods, to, there was a bare hillside. And I would lay and look at the stars until I calmed down, until I was relaxed, till I felt loved again. And as I said, I didn't know who or what, but I knew that those stars, those heavens, meant that somewhere, somehow, there was a beauty. There was a benevolence. There was something that I could trust and that would take care of me. Something greater than me. Vast, untouchable, profound, beautiful imperfection. It wasn't until I became a Christian that I recognized what was happening. I learned vocabulary. Paul put it this way. What may be known about God is plain. For since 
the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power, and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made, so that people are without excuse, without excuse, that is, to deny God. What did the stars reveal? This eternal power, this divine nature, an orderliness, a creativity, a beauty, a magnificence. It is how we begin to understand that God exists. It's the reason that from the dawn of time, every group of people that have ever lived in the world have created some form of worship, have created or, or attempted to create a relationship with the beauty that they see in the world and the heavens. The way Christians think about it is that there are two books. There is the book of nature, authored by God, in which he reveals himself in a sort of general way, the basics of who he is. And then there's a second book, the book of scripture, where God specifically reveals himself, reveals his name, reveals his personality and his character. And I want to just talk about that for a moment. Remember, we're thinking about how to interpret Jesus at Christmas time, how to interpret the one who claims to be part, to be behind the beauty, the orderliness, the power that created the heavens. What does, let's start with the book of nature, what does that reveal? The fact that we exist, the fact that there's a world, the fact that we are here. Now look at the first of the quotes I have for you here from Genesis. This is the very beginning of the Bible. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. What does that mean? First of all, it means that the world is important. It's not an illusion, as some religions would have you say. It is not something to be escaped. It has its own worth and significance because God thought it worthwhile to create. And because he created, it means it's worthy of study. It's worthy to ponder, to look up at the stars, to think about what they reveal. It is no accident that science grew out of Christianity. All the early scientists, Galileo, Newton, and his contemporaries were all Christians. And the reason they thought the stars and the heavens were worthy of study and serious attention was because they believed that it was created by the God that they worshipped. All Christians, in that sense, can and should be scientists because the heavens, all material things, declare the glory of God. We should pay attention to what God has created. However, as you know, there's a conflict. In our time and place, oftentimes people would say that science and religion are completely at odds with each other. There's no connection, that they're opponents. Why is that? Well, it started in uh, really the 20th century. Darwinism, uh, geology, attempts by Christians to respond to those were not very smart for the most part. 
in general, these are generalities, in general, the liberal wing of the church, confronted by scientific discoveries about how young the earth was and the idea that human beings were not created but um, evolved, they sort of tended to reject the Bible. If you have to choose between the Bible and science, you choose science. That's the real truth. This was written by people who were less knowledgeable a long time ago, and therefore you let it go. The more conservative, the more fundamentalist wing of Christianity tended, given the choice, to reject science. Take your kids out of school, reject the discoveries of science, don't study them at college, don't teach them to your children. Science is bad, we're going to stick to our Bible. The fundamentals. I would say, and I think this is true of our denomination in general, that the appropriate Christian response is to take both seriously. If we believe that God created the heavens and the earth, that he is the author of this world and everything in it, and he is the author of this book, then fundamentally there cannot be any contradiction between them. And we should take both seriously. And we should compare what is said by both to understand who we are and the world that we live in. Now you have to indulge me here. I'm going to give you a couple of examples of this. Some of you won't like this, but this is the kind of stuff that I live for. So indulge me at Christmas time. How can you re resolve science and the book? Aren't they completely different? Aren't they at odds with each other? Don't you have to check out your brain before you can read the Bible? I don't think so. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The universe, the world, had a beginning, a starting point. It has not always existed. Now this was a challenge to scientific orthodoxy for many centuries because scientists, going all the way back to the Greeks, believed that the, the universe was eternal and infinite, unchanging. The idea that it had a beginning was ridiculous. It was actually a Catholic priest in the 20s that first proposed that there was a primordial atom, as he called it. And then in the 30s, Edwin Hubble used his telescope to see that the universe was expanding. And if that's true, there must have been a time when it was much smaller maybe even as small as an atom. In the 40s, that idea was ridiculed as the Big Bang, originally a term of derision from other scientists, and now expected ortho uh, orthodoxy. Now, most scientists would agree that the Big Bang happened. The Bible was talking about it, the beginning, 5,000 years ago. No contradiction. The study of the heavens revealed that the beginning of the Bible is exactly true. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. As Einstein pointed out, if you're going to have anything at all, you need space to put it in. You need a heavens and an earth. And if anything interesting is going to happen in that space anything exciting, anything, any change, you need time. 
You need time and you need space. In the beginning, beginning of time, God created the heavens and the earth. He created the space in which everything happens. It is entirely consistent with everything that Einstein has revealed to us about the world. Now, he taught us that we live in a four-dimensional space-time continuum, which sounds alien and complicated and far from anything you would read in the Bible. But it's really very simple. Where is that cup? How would you locate the cup? Well, it's in the gym, it's in Hoboken, it's in this room. But say you had to locate that cup to somebody who's blind or in, a, in this room with the lights turned out. How would you locate it? Well, you'd tell somebody to walk along the wall until they hit the pillar. You would tell them they had one dimension. Walk until you hit the pillar, the length of the gym until you hit the pillar. And then what? Turn at right angles, and in a second dimension, width, come along until you find the table. But if you were crawling on your belly, you would miss it. So you need height, third dimension. And there's the cup. But what about the fourth dimension? Well, the cup's there right now because it's Sunday. If you showed up tomorrow, it's not there. On Monday, or Tuesday, or Wednesday, or Thursday, or Friday, or Saturday. You have to show up on Sunday between 10 and 12. So you need four dimensions, length, width, height, time. And there is the cup. Four-dimensional space-time continuum, all contained in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now, some people will say, that's just metaphor. The Bible, if it was serious about all this stuff, would sound like, like a scientific paper. It would spell things out as scientists understand them. It would be more specific. It would be more mathematical. It would be the way that scientists think, the way that scientists communicate with each other. But let me read to you what one scientist, uh, Professor Frederick Philby, he's a professor of chemistry in England, said. The sciences which probe most deeply into the ultimate facts of matter and life are probably uh, astronomy and nuclear physics and biochemistry. But these sciences are written not so much in languages as in the symbols of mathematics. It takes many pages of mathematical symbols to discuss the nature of a single atom of hydrogen a single virus would take a book. What hope, then, of a single account of the creation of man and the whole universe? If Genesis 1 were written in any kind of scientific language, it would be many volumes. Only the favored few could comprehend it, and it would have to be written, rewritten every generation to conform to the new views and terms of science. It could not be written in our 20th century scientific language, for no earlier generation could have grasped its meaning, and to our children, it would be out of date. Yet Genesis 1, in its original form, 
uses only 76 root words and establishes that all and establishes all that men really need to know about the facts of creation. Genesis 1 is God's handiwork, sufficient for Hebrew children or Greek thinkers or Latin Christians, for medieval knights or modern scientists, for cottage dwellers or cattle ranchers or deep sea fishermen, for Laplanders or Ethiopians, east or west, rich or poor, old or young, simple or learned. It is sufficient for all in any age of man. Only God could write such a chapter, and he did. That is why the Bible takes the form that it does, so that it could be understood by all the generations and will be understood for generations beyond us who have ideas and thoughts that we can't imagine. So that's how we should think about the world, about nature. It does have a relation to this book. This book has the same author as the world, and therefore, we should seek to understand it. But there are things that only become apparent when you read Scripture. You know, the heavens declare the glory of God, that he's eternal, he's before time, he's transcendent, he's beyond space, he's omnipotent, he can create everything with a word, that he is orderly, the laws of nature mean that we can understand the world. If it was chaotic, it would make no sense to us. But when you read the Bible, you get more specific information. John Calvin, uh, the theologian that began, the, one of the theologians who began the Reformation, called the Bible the spectacles, that when you put them on, you see God more clearly. He is revealed more fully, more fully than he is by looking at the stars. So what does Scripture reveal about God? Well, if you read through the Bible, you see that God is personal. He seeks relationship with people. He makes covenants with people. He's interested in what people are up to. He's compassionate. He takes care of them. He provides for them. He saves them. And most importantly, I think, and if we go to the second slide now, he reveals the nature of God. This is the beginning of, John, of Jesus' ministry. We looked at this when we were going through Mark. As soon as Jesus was baptized, he went up out of the water. At that moment, heaven was opened, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting on him. And a voice from heaven said, This is my Son whom I love. With him I am well pleased. This is not this abstract, distant God who creates the universe. This is a God who is personal, who is relational, who loves, and is a trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The Son, Jesus, goes down into the water. The Spirit descends onto him. 
the voice from heaven, this is my son, is the father. Here you see most clearly that God is not one person. God is three persons, united in a trinity. Now this is, for many people, is the most difficult aspect of God to think about or to comprehend or accept. I personally see it quite opposite. It is the aspect of God that shows that he is not a human invention. God is not just big daddy in the sky that hugs us at Christmas. God is utterly unlike us. He is not like any human being. He is tripersonal, a living community that has existed from all eternity. And notice what God says. This is my son, whom I love. The Trinity reveals that it's not just a group. It is a community, a set of relationships based on love from all eternity. As one theologian said, the three divine persons are not there simply for themselves. They are there in that they are there for one another. They are persons in social relationship. The Father can only be called the Father in relationship with the Son. The Son can be called Son only in relationship with the Father. The Spirit is the breath of the one who speaks. Being a person means being in relationship. Being a person created in the image of God means being in relationship. We are social creatures, down to the very core, and it's because that's who God is. So what does this mean? What's the implications of this? Love is part of God's very nature. It is transcendent. That is, it existed bef before time and space existed. Love does not need heaven and earth to exist because love is part of the transcendent God's nature, independent of his creation. That means love is literally eternal, uncreated, unformed, will exist forever. It is part of God's nature, and when we participate in love, we are participating in something that is eternal. As Corinthians put it, love is patient, love is kind, it does not envy, it does not boast, it is not proud, it does not dishonor others, it is not self-seeking, it is not easily angered, it keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Love never fails. Because it is the uncreated foundation of God's personality. The Bible says God is love. It defines him, he defines it. So think what that means. Think of all those sappy love songs that you've listened to your whole life. Our love is higher than the mountains and deeper than the sea, and I'll love you forever, and our love will overcome all obstacles, and all you need is love. 
according to Scripture, those are all literally true. Love is uncreated. Love does not depend on anything else for its existence. And love will be eternal. It means something else. The Trinity, I mean, by and the fact that love is the basis of the Trinity. Imagine God was one, one person. If God was solitary, if he was alone, then in order for to fully express himself to love, unless it was some kind of narcissistic, neurotic self-regard, in order to fully love another, a solitary God would have to create something to love, somebody to love. And that would mean that solitary God would not be perfect, would not be self-contained, would not be um, a God who could take care of himself. A solitary God who needs to love is needy because that God is not complete, requires something in addition to himself to fully be who he is. So a solitary God has a needy neurotic love or a narcissistic love. What if God were a duality? What if there are two persons from all eternity in love? Well, if they were a couple, certainly they could love each other. But I don't know if you've been around people in love. They're obnoxious because they're completely self-absorbed. They don't care about you. They look at each other. They don't look at you. They are all about themselves. It's not generous. It doesn't share. It is focused on the beloved. It is not a generous love. It is a jealous, particular, single, intense love. No generosity at all in lovers. Don't go around them. Certainly don't invite them on your sailboat. I've learned that. Um, but what if God is three? How does that change things? Well, if God is three, then between each uh, of the two persons of the Trinity, there can be that intense love. But when there are three, two of the persons in the Trinity can love each other and have a personal relationship that does not include the third. That means the love that they share is not a jealous love. It can enjoy other people being in love with each other. It can enjoy and celebrate two people's personal relationship, a relationship that does not include itself. And that means it is a generous love. That kind of love can include other people because it is not jealous of others sharing what they have. So what does that mean? The love that God has from all eternity is not needy, it is not neurotic, because it is self-contained. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit can fully express love to each other from all eternity without the need for anything else. So it's not needy. It's completely self-sufficient, and therefore it can be perfect, nothing missing. It is generous, because three always include the possibility of a relationship that doesn't include all. But there's something else, and I think this is the most important point I wanted to make. 
Because God's love is self-sufficient, because it's not needy, it can be gracious. God, triune God, does not need to love anybody else to fully express love. Self-contained. And therefore, there is no need for God to find things in addition to himself to love. Which means when God chooses to love, it is a choice. There's no compulsion. There's no requirement. God chooses to love who he chooses to love in addition to the Trinity. And therefore, God's love alone can love the unlovable. You don't need to be beautiful or attractive. You don't need to be lovable for God to love you because he doesn't need you. And therefore, when God loves, it is gracious. It is a choice that he makes, a decision. It is completely free from conditions. And therefore, God can bestow it on anybody, a free choice of his alone. And if he chooses to do it, you can never lose that love because you didn't win it in the first place. You didn't evoke it. There's nothing in you that made God love you. It was his decision alone. Well, think what that means. We're going to celebrate Christmas. Who or what is Jesus? Jesus is the second person of the Trinity. Jesus is God entering our world with that gracious, unneedy love. God is making himself available to human beings and bringing into our world a relationship, the possibility of a relationship with, with him. When you say, I'm not worthy, none of us are worthy. But it doesn't matter. Because God can graciously choose to love you despite yourself. And then no matter how ugly you are, no matter how terrible the things you've done in your past, no matter how ugly you think you are, what people have said about you, all the things from your past, the baggage that you carry with you. God, through Christ, has revealed a love that transcends the world. And he invites us to be in relationship with him through that love, through a relationship with Christ. And once that relationship begins, it can never be broken because it is not dependent on us. It's only dependent on God. And he is from all eternity. It is a remarkable fact. That is what we are celebrating at Christmas. Final thought. If this is true, then the most important thing that you and I can be about in our life are our relationships with God through Christ and our relationships with each other. Relationship Love is the only eternal thing. And therefore, that's what we should be about. The success of your life will be measured in your relationships, your ability to be in relationships, your ability to nurture and protect and sustain and work at relationships. Now, some of us are not good at relationships. I've never been good at it. 
But that's why I needed Christ. You know, that little boy looking up at the stars, I had no vocabulary, I had no words, no real structured thoughts, but I knew that magnificent magnificence meant that behind the beauty was a greater beauty, a transcendent beauty. I knew, I absolutely knew from the youngest days that that was true, but I had no words until I was introduced to the Bible. And as soon as I met Jesus, I recognized him. I became a Christian so quickly, it astonishes you. I applied for seminary three months after I became a Christian. I was like, boom, I know this guy. I want to know more. Because when you meet him, when you meet the personality, you recognize him. This is the one that created the stars. This is the beauty behind all beauty. This is a generosity that can even love a sinner like Tony Hinchler. The only one that could. That's why Christmas is worth celebrating. We have been given a gift we can't possibly imagine. The gift of gracious, eternal love. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that in Christ you have revealed yourself to us. That through Christ you have sent into our broken world a beauty greater than we can possibly imagine. A relationship more precious than anything we could possibly have. Lord, show us how to make that the central goal of our life. To be in relationship with you. To cultivate that relationship. To get to know you more. To share your relationship with others. We pray for that. In Jesus' name. Amen. And now, as we continue to worship, we are going to receive an offering.